Well, we just wrapped up a series of messages about serving and suffering for the glory of God. So now here's what I want to do. I want to slow it down for two weeks. And I want us to dig into two of the most glorious, big God chapters that I think you can find in all the Bible. Psalm chapter 46 and Isaiah chapter 40. And here's why I want to do this. Because we live in such a fast-paced world. Filled with stress... Noise, news, calendars, that if you're not careful, even as a Christian, you can get sucked into the mentality of thinking, doing more and moving faster always equals being more effective for God. But that's not what you see in the Bible. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 46. I do hope you have a Bible and turn with me to Psalm chapter 46 so that you can follow along. And I want to ask you to stand because I'm going to read the entire chapter. Psalm chapter 46, standing with me. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Silah. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our Refuge, Scylla. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. You may be seated. Now, that just might be the first time some of you have ever heard verse 10, be still and know that I'm God, in its context, in the entire chapter, where it's from. So here's the question I want us to wrestle with today. What's going to keep you and what's going to keep me from living furiously and frantically and fearfully in a world that is filled with noise and confusion, and upheaval, and constant change. I think this chapter gives us the answer. Because the psalmist frames up the bigness of our God and puts it 
in the context of calamities and confusion and noise and then cause us to respond to God. Who we see God is rather than what your circumstances dictate to you or what your feelings tell you has to be true. In other words, the psalmist tells you why you can still have courage and joy in the midst of a world filled with calamity and confusion. And then thank goodness, which is so often the case with the scriptures, he goes on to tell you how. Here's why you should still have joy and courage. And here's how to cultivate that. How can you keep on cultivating this kind of joy and courage in the midst of a world that's filled with calamity and confusion and noise and upheaval? Let's look at the why first. Why? Why can you still have joy and courage? Number one, you can have courage in the midst of calamities because God is in it with you. Not outside of it. In it. In the trouble. Look at verse one again. That's what verse one says. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help. Where? Say it. In. Not outside of the trouble. In trouble. That is one of the greatest distinctions of Christianity from other religions. All other religions place God outside of where we are and you need to do whatever you need to do to try to get his attention and get his help. Christianity has a God with us that we focus on once a year in December that we celebrate that he took on flesh. But that great doctrine permeates every day of the year. Christianity celebrates a God with us, not outside of the trouble in it with us. Very present help in trouble. And so how should that affect you if he's in it with you? You're not alone. You're not orphaned. He's in it with you. Well, that's what verse 2 is all about. Verse 2 is the result of getting a hold of verse 1. The person who starts to get a hold of and realize, oh my goodness, verse one's true for me. God is my refuge. And even when I'm super weak, in fact, as I sense greater weakness, that's when his strength becomes evident in me. And I don't have to rely on yesterday's help or my parents' help or someone else's story of God being helpful. It's right now What kind of help? Very present help. And where is it? In trouble. God does not step away from cancer. God does not step away from divorce. God does not step away from financial calamity. God does not step away from families with rebellious children. God steps in too. That's the God we have. He's a very present help in trouble. The results of knowing that, that's what verse 2 is all about. Therefore, now look at me before we even see what he's going to say. Therefore, and that's a word that the psalmist is very fond of, by the way. If you read through the psalms, you'll see the psalmist uses the word therefore 42 times. Because the psalms are so often extolling the greatness of who God is, attributes of God, characteristics of God, a history of God. But there's always implications. You never want to think, I'm just supposed to build up this amazing library and knowledge of who God is. All that understanding of God is always supposed to change your life. There's a therefore. 
there's a therefore that changes how I think, that changes what I feel, and then changes what I think I can do or not do next. Theology makes a difference in how you live. Therefore, if God is my refuge and he's my strength and it's a present help, not yesterday, and it's in the trouble, not outside of the trouble, therefore what? We will not, say it, fear. And here's what I appreciate about what the psalmist is doing right here. He doesn't just say, oh, God's a refuge, God's a strength, he's a present help in the trouble, therefore, don't be afraid. He doesn't do that. He says, therefore, we will not fear. And then he goes on and anticipates the pushback. I love how the scriptures do that. It's almost like someone who really knew us wrote it. (laughs) He did. God. God. They were saying, but wait a minute. I am afraid. Wait a minute. There's so many reasons to be afraid. And so he goes on and say, therefore, we will not fear though. And then he gives four atrocious sentences And I don't think it was intended to indicate natural disasters only, tsunamis and tornadoes and earthquakes. He is taking what things we can see with the naked eye that we would consider some of the most solid, stable, unchanging things. It's not often that you see mountains cast in the sea, right? This is how he's talking. What he's saying is when in your world the things you thought would never change, the things you thought you could depend on most, the things you thought were most unshakable and stable, when those things fall apart, you don't have to be afraid. Even then, though, look at it with me, Though the earth be removed, though the mountains are carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters roar and are troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. In other words, he's piling it on and ticking off so many of the reasons why we are so afraid. What's going on in our world? There's confusion, there's calamity, there's upheaval, there's chaos. He has loaded up verses 2 and 3 with some of the most unsettling, disturbing Hebrew verbs that he could choose to use. The verbs in their original root sense all speak of staggering, tottering, roaring, foaming, shaking. It's all incredibly unsettling, disturbing, and loud. And in that context, he says, we will not fear. In that. See, here's what I think is interesting. Why I want you to see this verse 10 in context. You may have known, be still and know that I'm God. If you Google that, go home and do that. Be still and know that I'm God. Photo, poster. What do you get? You just get placid lakes. And quiet forest crannies. And just peaceful, peaceful, peaceful posters. And you say... I think I've had two of those moments in my life. And if that's the only time verse 10 can be true for me, we're in big trouble. But that's the sense. The posters make you think, I got to get to a cabin in Wisconsin on the other side of that lake where there's nothing but moose looking at me. Because right now, this job, this health situation, this world that we live in, this neighborhood, my home, there's no way I can have verse 10. Verse 10 is in the context of upheaval, unsettledness, confusion. Things are very disturbing. That's why God's word is so good. He's telling us how to have this kind of peace, and we're going to get to it, 
when you're not sitting at a lake in Wisconsin and you're not on a retreat by yourself. You're thinking, I could have this kind of peace if I just didn't have, well, this spouse, these children, this job, this. No. No. He says things are shaking, staggering, tottering, foaming, roaring. That's the context he gives us. And is that not how often the world seems to us? So much changes. So much is loud. So much is unsettling. So much is, gives us cause and reason for fear. But we can have courage. We can have courage when you know God is in it with you. You're not alone. You're not an orphan. Secondly, let me show you another reason the psalmist gives us. He says, here's what you can have in the midst of these kind of times. You can have, number two, joy in the midst of political confusion. Because God has always been doing something bigger than what political parties or earthly powers can ever pull off. That's what he's talking about in verses four to six. Right in the middle of what looks like chaos and confusion, the psalmist reminds us of what God is doing and has been doing for all of history that cannot be shaken or taken away from us. Look at it in verses 4 to 6. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. I want to start with the trouble in verse 6. And then we're going to back it up into the good news of verses 4 and 5. But I want you to feel the trouble in verse 6 that the psalmist is talking about. Because I believe he has shifted gears Just like in verses 2 and 3, I don't think he was referring just to earthly disasters, earthquakes, tsunamis. Just the things that you thought would not change, that you could depend on the most. When those things are staggering, tottering, foaming, roaring. Now in verse 6, notice. Notice what he's talking about, that it can be so unsettling. In the same way, verse 6 is now describing political confusion and upheaval that we all So often see in our world, and if you lived as long as I have, I almost always saw it in other countries. But for the first time, it feels like it's here. Now, we don't have the anarchy that some countries have, but is it not unsettling? Wherever you are on the election or whatever, but this is different. America has been known for peaceful transitions from office to office, largely, and not chaos. But there's this sense of, oh, Oh, in the streets and rhetoric and sound bites and oh, oh, oh. And it's on our shores, not in some other country. And it's unsettling. And regardless of who you voted for and whether you're happy or sad, if you're a human being, it should be unsettling to you saying, this is not normally how we function. Where is this headed? What is going on? Now, maybe you're thinking, Brad, I don't see the word politics in verse six. So how are you getting this? Well, look, verse 6 is talking about kingdoms being moved or reordered. And if you look back at verse 2 even, look at verse 2 at that phrase, though the earth be removed. Literally in the Hebrew, it can be translated, though the land changes hands. Oh, 
There's been a massive change in who has power and who's in control and who has authority. What was in is out. What was out is in. And that can be very unsettling, especially if you preferred what you had before. Though the land changes hands. So what does the psalmist do to settle us in the midst of political upheaval and dramatic change? Well, look at verse 4 again, because he talks about a river and he talks about a city. But I do not believe he's talking about a literal city or a river somewhere located in that day. That's not what he's doing. He talks about a city and he talks about a river. But he's talking about the fact that there has always been a city of God within whatever political climate or country borders or powers are going on. God always is doing something with his kingdom. A city within a city. What doesn't matter whether the country is communist, socialism, democracy, rank tyranny. God has a city. God has something he's doing. So what's the city of God? I believe it is the people of God all over the world, gathered in worship, regardless of what, what the governmental system is, whether it's gathered in secret in the basement of a communist country or gathered openly like we hear, are here in America, there's a city of God. And God's people are citizens of another kingdom. And we're aware when Jesus was here, he kept saying, the kingdom of God has come. If I cast out demons in the power of mine, then the kingdom of God has come. News alert, you guys, we're not, we, we are waiting for the consummation and the fulfillment of some things. But God's kingdom is here. And God has a people. And God has a city. God is always doing more than what men and women could ever do through the political system, whatever it is. That city of God is fully realized in Revelation 21 and 22. If you go there and you'll see when King Jesus is fully seated on his throne and there's a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, you see the fulfillment of that city of God. But it's here. There is a city. There is a city. That's what Augustine was talking about. Augustine wrote a classic book uh, way back in the 5th century, almost more than 900 pages about this very issue, and he titled it The City of God, where he talks about the history, God's ways, of what God is doing, permeating the history of man's ways. And here's what's interesting. Augustine didn't write that sitting at a placid, quiet lake somewhere during wonderful times. Augustine wrote The City of God during one of the most turbulent and violent times in history, when barbarian hordes were streaming out of the north and were ravaging Roman civilization. And there was this sense of where are we headed? What is going on? Security, we don't have it. The city of God, the people of God, the kingdom of God that's always bigger. Well, what about this river in verse four? I think the river speaks of the satisfying, soul-quenching presence of God, regardless of how barren your circumstances are. Same thing when you go to Revelation, you'll see this river. But even now, as new covenant believers under grace, on this side of the cross and resurrection now, Jesus spoke this way. Water and river and streams 
often was an indication of spirit and life and joy and refreshment. He said in John 7, 37, out of your bellies will flow rivers of living water. And he said, I speak to you of the Holy Spirit. So you can be in horrible circumstances, barren circumstances, discouraging circumstances, fearful circumstances, and still have a thirst quenching, satisfying sense of the presence of God with you in it. Even more so than the psalmist because you got the Holy Spirit living inside of you, not outside of you. But stay with me. This is not just some heady theology about an unseen, invisible kingdom and city. Theology was always designed and intended to change how you think, to fuel new emotions so that you can do more than you think you could choose to do. That's what he's doing right here. The psalmist introduces this subject of the city and the river because he wants to fuel emotions in us that have nothing to do with your immediate circumstances and what you can see with the naked eye. Is that not what we need so often? I need an emotion that's being fueled and fed by something besides my circumstances, something besides what the news is telling me, something besides what I sense in this world right now. There's a city. There is a river. So what are the emotions? What are the emotions that this city and this river should stir up in God's people? I I think I see two in the chapter. Gladness and steadfastness. Gladness and steadfastness. Look at the gladness in verse 4. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the people of God gathered in worship who know God has a kingdom. God is doing something more. And look at the steadfastness in verse 5. God is in the midst of her. He's in the midst of his people. She shall not be Move. That's not because of how great we are. That's not because we're so... Even when your knees are buckling in your weakest moment, when you are trembling and you have lost heart, that's when he said in 2 Corinthians 12, in our weakness, then his strength is made perfect. That's when we really sense the strength of God in and through us so that we will not be moved. Now stick with me. If that word gladness really didn't grip you like it should. And I suspect that it didn't. Because in the English, it just, it doesn't do to our English sounding, English ears, what all that it ought to do. It doesn't capture what the Hebrew verb is really talking about. It's not just some quiet, internal bit of happiness. Like, despite the horrors of what I think is going on in my life and our world right now, right here, I sense a little quiet happiness. Thank you, Lord. The pup of happiness is curled up next to me. No, yeah, uh, no, I want more than that. He's, he's, he's talking about more than that. Oh, listen to me. The Hebrew word right there for gladness was a word that meant an emotion that erupts with extreme happiness so that you've got to get it out. It ha- the word always entailed and indicated, I've got to express it. I've got to express it. I know personalities differ. And so for you, that might look like right here. I'm going nuts. Okay. But don't let me see you do more than that during the Super Bowl today. If that's, that's wide open for you. 
It is as you realize who God is and what he's doing and that there is a kingdom and there is a city and I've got the, this river of life despite circumstances. There, not every day, all the time, every moment, but there ought to be moments where it's there and you're like, I got to get it out. Yes, real joy, real happiness, not based on my circumstances. It was actually a Hebrew word that was used, that they used all the time at wedding festivals. If you know anything about a Jewish wedding, very expressive. At military celebrations after they had conquered an enemy. It was a word that was translated to describe a young heifer in spring leaping and skipping about the field. That's a wonderful picture. Some of you need to go, young heifer. It also was used to describe a stallion who would just throw his head back and neigh. I like that. Despite Fox News, neigh. Despite CNN News, despite the blogs, despite everything doesn't look like I would want it to look for me to have that peace and sense of security. But I can throw my head back and neigh because of what I know about God. And that he's not outside of my trouble. He's in it with me. And there's something bigger going on. Always, always has been and still is. And so right about now, you should be thinking. It's right if you're thinking, but Brad, how do I get that kind of joy that just needs to be expressed? How How do I get, how do I maintain this kind of courage in the face of circumstances that wouldn't be a reason to be courageous? That's what the psalmist does next. Praise God, he gives us the answer. He's going to tell you what to do. And, I would, and that's what verses 8 to 10 are about. I would summarize what he tells us to do for you this way. Take a deep breath so that you can look at God and let God be God. Take a deep breath so that you can look at God and let God be God. And here's where I'm getting this take a deep breath. It's biblical. Did you notice a word that three times was repeated that you might say, I don't even know what that means. And Brad seemed to make a much of it. Why didn't we just skip that? Remember what the word was? What was it? Selah. Selah. Here's the deal. In the Hebrew, biblical scholars admit they don't exactly know what it means. But they all agree on this. It was some type of musical notation See, if you recall, the Psalms, many of them were meant to be sung. It's a songbook. God knows there's something about singing truth. That's why we take time to sing. That's why I don't want you to just hover in the lobby until the real show begins with the preaching. There's a reason we sing truth and then I preach truth. And then sometimes we sing truth again after you've heard truth preached. God knows how, we, how we're wired when you sing it. So it was a musical notation that actually meant pause. Pause. Think about that. It perhaps indicated the singing stops and there's a musical interlude where just the instruments play so that you can think about what you've already sung. That's enough. That's enough right there. Is our problem not, is it not true that so often it's not that I need a new thought or piece of information. I need to slow down and chew on and truly get a hold of what I say I already know. Right? That's what he's doing. That's why it's amazing to me. This is a short psalm compared to some. 
These are very short verses. In just 11 short verses, he uses this notation where he's saying, pause, take a breath, three times. Three times. Why? I think it's because of the nature of what he's wanting to do for us here. When there's calamities and unrest and unsettledness and upheaval and change in my life and in my world... I do not need to speed read through truth about who God is. I need to chew on it. And so it's like, Selah, just think about that. He's a refuge, strength in, not outside. And he moves on. There's a city of God, not just with the Democrats and Republicans and independents and communists and socialists or whoever else are doing. God has a kingdom. There's a city and there's a river and it makes glad the people of God. Think about that. And then, come behold. That's where we are. After the second pause, after the second notation of just stop and think about that, then he says, now let me tell you, as you've thought about who God is, as you've thought about his kingdom and what he's doing that's bigger than what men and women are doing politically, now let me tell you what you have to do. Up until verse eight, there've been no commands, no imperative verbs. He's not telling you to do anything. Verses one through seven are, know this, know this, know this. And now he's saying, in light of this, do this, do this. It's actually four commands that are coupled together in a pair. There's two commands in verse eight and there's two commands in verse 10. Look at verse eight, come. Behold the works of the Lord. Look at verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. What is the psalmist actually commanding us to do in verse 8? Here's how I would say it to you. He is saying, take another look at who is really in charge of all of history. Take another look at who's really in charge of history. Come behold the works of the Lord. The first verb, come, it means to move towards a new position, to move to a position. Behold, to a position where you are able to take a long, scrutinizing look at what God has been doing in all of history. The word behold is not a casual word. So it's not just glance. Take a glance at God. The word behold was a word that entailed energy. Put energy into it. Be attentive. Stay with it. Don't get in a hurry. Scrutinize. Look. You can't do this in a hurry. So now, here I'm going to give you awkward moment number 700. For those of you that don't read your Bibles and think, when is he going to let up when I die? With saying, you got to read your Bible. Because here's the question to you. How would you obey, verse 8, to come behold the works of the Lord without reading your Bible? CNN News won't give it to you. Nobody today during the Super Bowl, there won't be a pause in some commercial that someone paid $5 million is going to say, don't forget, God is sovereign. God is doing something bigger. It's not just Trump. It's not just Hillary. It's not just take heart, be encouraged. You're not going to have it happen. You have to pick up God's word and read it to behold the works 
of the Lord. Now I'm going to make it even more awkward. If you are in the habit of just reading the New Testament and some Psalms and throw in a proverb every now and then, you won't be able to do this well. There's a reason that our Bible is 66 books and 39 of them. More of your Bible is Old Testament than New Testament. Did you know that? Do we need that? Why is it there? And tons of it is history. There's kings I've never heard of and countries that don't really exist anymore, at least not with the same borderlines drawn the way they were. Whoa, it doesn't apply to me. It's not America. Why read it? Oh, I'll tell you why I read it. So that you'll see the works of the Lord in all of history. There was an Egypt that was a powerhouse, but no more. There was a Babylon that was a powerhouse, but no more. There was Persia. There was Medo-Persia. There was Greece. There was Rome. It will feed your understanding. We live so often with all we think about is right here, right now. You understanding history will help you do what the psalmist is trying to get you to do so that you can trust and you can rest and you can sleep and you can have some peace when you realize, oh, God has been at work all through history. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to take one Old Testament book and show you how you could use one Old Testament book that some of you maybe have never read to obey verse 8. To come behold the works of the Lord. Go to Jeremiah. Use the index if you have to. Jeremiah, it's a history, a history that God is in control of every power, every ruler, every nation. Start in Jeremiah 25, 9. Behold, God speaking, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, say the next two words, say them louder. Let me help some of you. Donald Trump is God's servant. Yeah, don't run screaming from the room. Don't hear me saying that that, that means he's, he, everything he does is right. He's so blessed. No, I'm telling you what the Bible teaches us. Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant. Was Nebuchadnezzar good or bad? He was wretched, far worse than Trump or Hillary could ever be today. Horrible. And he was God's servant. He was only in that position because God placed him there. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, a perpetual desolation. There's the word from Psalm 46, 8. Come behold the works of the Lord. He's made desolations in the earth. See, our God when he chooses to bring an end to a power or a nation, it's just like that, done. That's why Psalm 75 says, God raises up one and God puts down another. It's not an electoral process. It's not people. It's not your agenda. It's not marketing. It's not military. All those things are factors on an earthly level, you guys. But above that is the sovereignty of God. And God is in absolute control of governments and rulers and nations all over the world. All he always has been always will be. Go to chapter 27, verse 6. And now I've given all the... Notice, I love this. God is talking. I have given all these lands. God is the one that gives any authority to a human being to rule. 
I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Say those two words. My servant. And the beasts of the field I've also given to him to serve. So all nations... Now watch this. God is not in control in general. God is in control in detail. He's going to say, I'll tell you how long this man and his family are going to be in control. It'll be Nebuchadnezzar and his son and his son's son. God is absolutely in control. So all nations, verse 7, shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes. What time? The time that God has done with him and his family. Until the time of his land comes and then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. Chapter 29, verse 10. Chapter 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord after 70 years. Oh, I love this. God will tell you exactly how long something is going to take place. And then it happens exactly as he has said. He said, 70 years is how long this is going to take place. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I have for you, declares the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not evil to give you a future and a hope. Here in one sermon, I've helped you see the context of two verses that are often quoted. So we've got be still and know that I'm God, that I hope you'll just tump that little boat over and make some splashes in the lake the next time you see those stupid posters. And say, I don't need help being still in those places. God meant to help me sitting, waiting for cancer treatments for my wife. He meant to help me in this noisy job that I'm a part of with, with foul language and, and harshness and Right there he wants. And now here, this is the verse that often gets quoted for graduation in cards. And there's a principle there. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not calamity to give you a future and a host. Context? He's telling them that in the middle of horrible things that are about to happen to them for 70 years. We tend to think, and therefore nothing bad's going to happen to me because he knows the plans. He's just saying, hold on. Regardless of what's going on in your life, and it may last a long time. I have purposes and plans for you. I have not abandoned you. There's the context for Jeremiah 29, 11. Go to 46, 17. Chapter 46, verse 17. Do you see what's happening here? If you're not reading this kind of stuff, listen to me. I can honestly tell you in the last five, six, seven, eight years, as I read my Bible, how much do I read? Every year? I'll tell you when my hand has gone up more. It's in passages like this. When I was younger and I went to church, I was like, I don't need to read Jeremiah. Like, ugh, so long. And it's people I've never heard of. And it's in my chair in the living room when I see Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. I can't even keep it up. Oh, yes. Praise God. Yes, God is in control over the nations. Over the nations. He was then. He is now. Sometimes I got to go two hands. Right there in my chair in the living room. We go two hands. And I'm, I'm, I'm so moved by the big Old Testament prophet books because they're so filled with the clarity that God raises one up. God puts one down. He's got the exact time. God is in. You won't get that from the news. You don't get that from blogs. You don't get that. Everything in our world is loud and right now and makes much of what men and women are doing. And you're led to believe this is what matters most. And these are the deciding factors. 
What an encouragement. When I have that got to be expressed joy begin to erupt is when I'm reminded God is bigger, God is sovereign, and God is in control. And some of you need some of that. You're watching hours of television. How much do you need to see to know how bad and upsetting it is? I need more. I haven't had a panic attack yet. If I stay here night after night, surely I'll begin to have to have a medicine to help me. Yeah, you will. If you're not reading your Bible, don't hear me saying stick your head in the sand and don't know who the president is. It's Trump. People are in the street. It's upsetting. You can probably shut it off for six months and come back and say to somebody, how are things now? Worse. Okay. I didn't miss anything. Just keep reading your Bible. I don't need details about how bad it is. I need details about God being in control and an awareness of what's going on. Does that make sense? Some of you got it completely backwards. You barely have an awareness of who God is and what he's done. You don't know him. And you're up to your eyeballs in the details of everything that's so upsetting in this world. And it's no wonder that you're depressed and discouraged and don't have any kind of, whoa, young heifer leaping joy coming out of you. And I'm not mad. I want to help you. I love you. I want you to leap too. I want us to leap together. But you cannot leap and you cannot nay if you're not coming and beholding the works of the Lord. And very often you got to go Old Testament to see the works he wanted you to see. I could go on, but for the sake of time, we're going to have to shut down Jeremiah. But it's so cool. If you just keep going and I had more, you'll see that along comes Medo-Persia. And he actually says, now I'm going to take down Egypt. There was a powerhouse and they're just but a noise. And, and Babylon, he calls a hammer in his hand. And then when he's done with Babylon, the hammer, he shatters the hammer. Our God just uses earthly powers to serve his purposes. And when he's done, he puts them down and he moves on. But God is in control. You can read books like Ezra and others in the, where he actually says Cyrus will be the name of the king for the Medo-Persians who's actually going to send the Jews back to the land to rebuild it. Why would a pagan king send them back with his blessing? Because God is sovereign and he promised that's how it would go down. And so it did. And we're living in times that are going down just like God has planned. Now again, Don't email me and say, well, then why this? How could God allow? Take it up with God. I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches. And you can say, well, you can ask him when you get there. After you get off your face for a gazillion years and being in his presence, all of a sudden it won't matter. And you'll just think, I get it. I get it. Now we see through a glass darkly. Then face to face, he's good. He's wise. He's sovereign. He knows what he's doing. Trust him. But it's hard when you don't know the works of the Lord and all you know is the news. What about the second command? So come, behold the works of the Lord. You got to move to a position where you're able to take a long scrutinizing look at what God has been doing. The only position I know of that is your Bible. Move. But the second command, the couplet, In verse 10, be still and know that I'm God. Now look at me. I don't think you can do the second command until you get a hold of the first. The first paves the way for the second. You've got to be still before you can start to know that he is God. And even this, 
that word in the Hebrew, be still, is not even so much indicating lack of movement. I'm not moving. Literally, the word meant to release something, to let it go. Oh, that's why one of the English translations says, cease striving. What is it that we strive over and cling to so much that robs us of knowing him and resting? Our own agenda. Oh, somebody say, ouch. Of how I thought it had to be. What I thought this marriage would look like. How I thought my kids would turn out. What I thought this job would be. How my career would go. How I thought my health would be. Ha, ha, ha. And I'm just still, he's saying, release your agenda. And it's only then that you can even begin to know. And get this, the word know there in the Hebrew is not just, let's get some knowledge about God. Let's get some factoids about God. It's the same Hebrew word that was used to describe sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. Same word that was used, Adam knew Eve, and it produced Cain and Abel. What's going on? The psalmist knows you need far more than information about God. You need intimacy with God. You want to be able to have real courage and joy. He's got to be the God that you know personally. He knows me. He's been in my trouble. I've tasted it in my weakness. He's been my strength. He's been a refuge for me while everything is coming unhinged around me. And I'm reading my Old Testament and seeing that he's the God of history. And I'm having moments of joy that has to get out occasionally. Release. I know that I am. Some of you, the reason God seems like such a stranger to you is because you still are so busy clinging to, fretting over, striving about your own agenda. And your relationship with God is really nothing more than, here's what I've always wanted. And now that I'm a Christian, you're supposed to help me get it. And I keep reading books about prayer to find out how I can put God in a prayer headlock so that he will really have to do. I'm fasting now, God. I'm hungry. Look at me. I'm actually hungry. So you've got to do what I want. Please. Even prayer. Sure, ask what you want. But listen. And prayer is how we commune with God so that you come to know him. Not just hand him your agenda and ring the bell like you're at the counter of some hotel for God to be a cosmic bellboy to come get your bags and carry it to the room you've chosen. But that's the version of Christianity that you see in America so often. And you will be a stranger to God. And you will live with turmoil. Because it's all about you. And you don't know God. Come behold, works the Lord. Be still, release, and know that I am God. What about you today? Do you know God intimately so that you can rest in him completely? Or have you yet to lay down your agenda And it keeps you churning, churning. And have you been guilty of thinking, I've just got to get different circumstances. I got to get a different job. I got to, I got to have something done about these kids. And it's this marriage. And if I could just get to a different place, then I can have this kind of peace. 
oh, praise God that one of my favorite verses, this verse is stenciled on our wall in the living room. Be still and know that I'm God. I like it even more knowing the context. It was stated as a possibility in the midst of chaos and confusion and upheaval and unrest and change. You can still have rest and know him and have peace in that context. We have the advantage over this psalmist today of even being on this side of the cross, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ and his ascension. We're on this side of the cross. The psalmist knew nothing of that. And so all the more so, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And that's why Jesus could say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, carrying burdens, freaked out, stressed out, and I will give you what? Rest. Listen to me. You will never have rest in this world until you find rest for your soul in Jesus. That's step one. That's the starting point. But then some of you believers who have rest for your soul, your biggest problem has been solved. You don't have rest right now like you should because it's your agenda. There's something that you just won't lay down. Something that you live clenched fisted over. And so to help us to think about how he calls us to come. And how if he solved our biggest problem then on the cross. Will he not help us now in the midst of trouble? We're going to celebrate communion.